All right. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on Psalm 85, verse 6. And I defined, we defined from that scripture, revival as God restoring the life of his people. God restoring the life of his people Uh, on a corporate, not merely an individual level, but God working in his people as a whole, as a group, so that he is their joy and their delight. But you know, it's one thing to define revival according to the word of God. That's important. But it's another thing to seek it according to. To God's word and to seek it his way. And so I'm compelled to return to the text of Psalm 85 this morning and and not leave off the subject of revival without considering how we as the body of Christ might seek revival God's way. Now, this psalm is by no means a magic formula. Um, There's no three-step program to get revival in any of the scriptures. But this song of God's people is the expression of a heart that longs for God to work among his people, that longs for God to visit his people and to glorify himself by renewing us yet again. So turn then with me to Psalm 85, and if you would please stand as I read from verse 1 to verse 8. Psalm chapter 85, verses 1 to 8. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Amen. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and enable us to seek His will and see Him act and see Him revive us again. Briefly, let me remind you, the the words of this psalm were originally written for the use of the director of the temple choir. And they would sing this song at the temple when the people of Israel gathered there to worship the Lord. This was their prayer to God 
one of their prayers to the Lord when they would gather together. Now, this particular psalm is written as a prayer asking the Lord to act on behalf of His people to do what they cannot to bring new life. And there's a clear progression in this psalm, and we'll, we'll look at each of these things in turn. First, the psalmist recalls past mercies in verses 1 to 3. He recalls the the past mercies of God. Second, the psalmist asks in verses 4 through 7 for present renewal. He asks for present renewal. Third, the psalmist, together with the people of God, anticipates God's answer. Wait for Him and have hope in Him. That's in verse 8. And fourth, the people of God ask God to keep them from falling. To keep them from falling. We're going to cover all of these. And then next week, we'll discuss the last part, the fifth part of this prayer, where the psalmist really envisions for us, he pictures for us the newness of life God will give His people. In verses 9 through 13. But we're going to consider those first four recalling the mercies of God, asking the Lord to renew us today, anticipating the answer of the Lord, and asking God to keep us from folly. So, first, the psalm begins with three parallel lines, verses 1 to 3. Each is a parallel line, each verse, that recalls the Lord's past mercies. You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob, line 1. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, line 2. And you withdrew all your wrath You turned from your hot anger. Line three. So we have here a description of God being gracious to His people. Some would say that this is speaking about God bringing Israel back from exile in Babylon. It could be the occasion for the song, one of the when it was written. But there's nothing clear in the text that demands this way of thinking. The phrases we have here are, you were favorable, you restored or you brought back your people, you forgave, you turned. All of these phrases don't identify for us a specific time God was gracious to Israel. Instead, they remind us of the many times God has been merciful in the past. I think it's general on purpose. Some Psalms do recall very specific examples of God's mercy. They talk about um, the Red Sea. Or they talk about how God was 
uh, forgave the people in the wilderness when they were grumbling. But here we're given a summary statement of how God in the past has acted towards His people. This is who He is towards His people. He's a God who's been favorable. He's a God who has forgiven. He's a God who has turned aside from His anger. And it is good for us to remember these these things. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that we pray to a God who has acted in history with mercy, after mercy, towards His people? Not one time, not way back then in the past, just, well, that was just a one-time thing. But again and again. To recall the past mercies of God, His past kindness toward us, is to remember The Lord who doesn't change. Our God doesn't change like the stormy sea. One day, He's happy with you and you're on the good side. The next day, He's angry. No, He's perfectly just and He's always merciful. And He who restored His people once will do it again. He who did not spare His own Son, the Apostle Paul said, how will He not also freely give us all things? Romans chapter 8. He who's put His Spirit in us by faith in His Son, He will take care of His people. If you know the Lord of yesterday, You know the Lord of today. He's the same. If you know how God has acted in the past, why hesitate to call upon the Lord for present mercy? He's the same. Who else could we pray to than the one who has shown compassion again and again, towards a people that don't deserve it. So the psalmist doesn't just recall past mercies as though he wishes he lived in the past, you know. If only I lived in the good old days when God was kind. He's calling upon God today. He leads the people. The choir led the people in prayer to God in the present, asking that He would act in the same way as He always has. After recalling past mercies, the psalm turns to asking for present renewal. They sang out, verse 4, Restore us again. O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. The tone shifts in verse 4. New mercy, 
New life is needed. There is a present need for the people of God that God would forgive them and that God would bring them new life. The psalmist doesn't shy away from describing the extent of the Lord's anger towards His people. Three different words describe the Lord's displeasure. In verse 4, indignation. Verse 5, some translations try to make the distinction of the different words and they say, will, will you stay mad with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? God hates sin. And since we by nature are sinners, our greatest need is for forgiveness and a new nature, new life. The psalmist significantly prays for both of those things. For both pardon for sin and for a revival, a renewal of life. And brothers and sisters, I want you to remember this. I want you to understand this. This prayer is most fully and completely satisfied in Christ. Under the new covenant, God's wrath is satisfied fully by the blood of Christ. It is paid in full. The debt is forgiven. And whoever believes in Christ need not fear Condemnation, for they are a new creation. They've been given new life. Today, you may trust in Christ and receive pardon and be given new life by the Spirit of God. So the people of God do not pray as though God has not done this in Christ. We pray knowing that He has forgiven. And that He has made us new. Not because of us, but because of His kindness. Because of His mercy. Nonetheless, God is still angered. He is deeply grieved by the sin of His people. And though He will not cast off His people forever, He disciplines the one He loves. Hebrews 12, verse 6. In fact, in that passage, God warns, if you are left without discipline, in which all, all of the people of God have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You are not children. And not sons. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. When the sons of God wander off, they will not feel close to God. It will not feel as though, well, God doesn't matter. 
what I do or say or think. There will be chastisement. The conscience should trouble us. But the Lord chastises. He disciplines so that His people would return and seek their Father again. Asking Him to restore them like the prodigal who returned to his father. And what did the prodigal find? A father who was aloof, who said, well, if you work hard for me, I'll make a deal with you. No, he found new mercy beyond what he deserved. And the father did not merely wait for his son to come to him, but he ran to him. And that is our God. So how should we pray when we see the anger of God towards the sin of His people? We see the people of God wandering far from Him. How should we pray for the compromising, comfortable church in North America that includes us in many ways in the attitudes of our hearts? A church that would rather be liked by the world than speak the truth. A church that would rather be at ease than stoop down to live with the needy and the untouchables of of society. How should we pray when we ourselves are prone to these kinds of temptations? I'm sure that much could be said on this, but I would direct your attention to notice in verses 4-7 through where and why the people of God prayed for new life. Where and why they prayed for new life. And let these these thoughts direct our prayers and our hearts. Where did they pray? Where did they look? They called upon the Lord. Restore us again, O God. Revive us. Will You not revive us? Show us Your steadfast love, O Lord. They were not looking to themselves. They were not calling upon foreign armies and powers. They were not looking to the priests. They called on the Lord. How often is that your first reaction when you are in trouble? When you know I have sinned. Or when you see someone else whom you love, a brother or sister in Christ that is in trouble. Do you call on the Lord? That is where we should turn. But often we call a friend or we we go to Dr. Google and we ask him to help us. We turn in a lot of places rather than God. 
And so we need this reminder to turn to the Lord. You know, I've seen some people catch revival fever. I think in some ways it's a good thing. We should want revival. But some people, they're all about organizing these revival meetings. They're praying down fire from heaven and seeking revival. But the problem is they they don't entrust the work to God. They don't look to God to be the one to change people. To produce the growth in His time. We err when we think that we can affect revival or that revival should come our way. We need to look to God and and trust Him and pray to Him because there's only one person the last time I checked the Bible who can create life where there is no life. And that is not you or I. So if you wish to grow in your faith, if you wish to see revival among the people of God, cultivate a habit of turning to God in everything. Even if it's only a brief prayer to call out to God, to turn to Him first before anything else. When you wake up in the morning, that you turn to God. When you come upon a trouble when you come upon a, a difficult situation where you have to make a decision you call upon God when you go to bed at night you thank the Lord for what he has done and you pray to him for rest and you call upon God to turn to him for where else can help be found You want to see revival in the church. Pray to God. Look to Him. But it's not only where they prayed or who they prayed to. It's also why they prayed. What is the motivation? What is the right heart that we should have when asking God to work among us. There is one reason given in these four verses. And it is found in verse 6. And it is made known by the word that that this is the goal this is the reason the people of God prayed that your people may rejoice in you they weren't asking for a more comfortable life they weren't asking Lord get me out of here I don't like this They were asking for a life that rejoiced in God. That was their desire. Their prayer was, help me rejoice in you here, Lord. 
Folks, to genuinely seek revival among the people of God is not asking for security in this life from dangers or heartaches or hard, backbreaking, painful work. It is to desire God, to be your God, to be the one in whom is your hope and in, in whom is your happiness. Revival isn't about an overwhelming emotional experience as wonderful as it is to encounter God. It affects us, our whole being. It's not a dry sort of head knowledge. But it is not Primarily about a certain experience that we have. Or about an outwardly reformed life. As, as good as it is when people are moral and abide by the standards of God, it is not primarily about that. Revival that does not result in a life that rejoices in God is just a counterfeit. It's like a cloud that promises rain and passes by. It doesn't produce any life. It doesn't give anything except an empty promise. Genuine revival says with Paul, I counted all as loss compared with the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what the changed heart, the revived heart says and longs for. I want Jesus. What more do I need than him? Where do you turn and why are you are you seeking God? Is it to satisfy your own desires or is it because you want him? To be glorified. You want to be satisfied in Him. You want Him to fill you up. Not all the things that are in this world. Think about that. As you pray, as you go about your day, where do I turn first? And what am I asking for? Why am I asking for this thing. Am I willing to give it up. To the Lord. These things reveal. The true state of our heart. Like the psalmist. The prophet Habakkuk prayed a similar prayer. And it's a very short. It's one verse. You can write it down, read it again. Maybe it's a verse to memorize as you think about, about praying for revival. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of You and Your work. O Lord, do I fear. 
In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk asked the Lord essentially to do again what he has done before. To again, in wrath, remember mercy. That is how God would have us to pray. Remembering his past mercies and so coming to him for present help. Coming to him that he would fill us up. That we would be satisfied in him. Well, what about if you're praying that? You've been praying. You've been remembering. God is... His mercies are new every morning and and you think about how good he's been and you're praying to him. What then? Verse eight. The psalmist. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not. Turn back to falling. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people. After turning to God, the psalmist leaves it in God's hands. The psalmist pauses to wait for and anticipate God's response. He affirms that God will answer the people of God. And he answers with the word peace. That it will be well with the people of God. How can we be sure God will answer? Because he is the God who has spoken. He is a God who has spoken peace in the past. Who has brought about peace. He did not merely promise it. But He brought about peace by the blood of His cross. So the psalmist takes the time to look to the Word of God And takes comfort in the reminder, God will not leave us high and dry. He will speak peace to his people. And let's be honest and real here. All of your wishes will not come true. But God will accomplish what is good and best. For his people. He does answer. So you can pray. And you can. Wait on God. Trusting that he will act. With great confidence. Knowing that you're in the best of hands.
brothers and sisters, when you pray, do you do you realize God does answer? And you can be confident in that reality. He's not left us alone. He's given us his word. And he makes a way. And the time is right. And he accomplishes good things. When you can do that, when you can wait on the Lord, the prophet says, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. We rush on. We can't wait. We just don't trust God. We'll, we'll pray and pray and pray, but we, we won't stop and believe what God has said. We're not trusting. It's good to pause to remember the promises of God. To leave things in His hands. And then again, yes, to pray the next day. Pray the same thing. Pray it again, trusting in God and waiting on Him. Because He speaks and He speaks peace to His people. There's one last thing the psalmist adds almost as an afterthought at the end of verse 8. A prayer. Let them not turn back to folly. Let them not turn back to folly. Why this prayer all of a sudden? For the simple reason that we are prone to turn back. Many times the word of God is received with joy. But when difficulties come. The excitement wears off. And people return to their lives. More or less like the world. Old friends come calling to say. Just one more drink for old time's sake. We promise ourselves, well, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit after just one more click on these images. And as the proverb says, the dog returns to his vomit. The fool returns to his falling. What is it about the fool that does that? What is it about somebody who's tasted something of God's goodness, but they turn away, reject it? After a while, the things of this world seem more important because they don't want God. They don't know and desire God above all else. And who of us has not fallen into such temptations. Some trust in wealth, some in their works. Some people like the sound of hiding their heart of envy and hate. Daddy. 
the covetousness within us, we, we like to hide it behind a whitewashed wall of religious practices. Good moral things. That's an appealing lie to think that I'm okay because I'm better than him. Temptations abound, folks. So what do we do? We need to turn to God who alone can keep us. It is good for us daily to pray as our Lord taught us. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, don't don't let me go anywhere near that. Deliver us from the evil one. Let your people not turn back to folly because He alone can help us. And He will. In Christ, He has made a way of escape. A way through every temptation. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He is not only able to give us new life, but He is able to keep us from turning back, from turning away. And so as we pray for new life, we ought to pray that God would keep us, His people. That we would rejoice in Him alone. The heart cry of the psalmist is for God to be our joy and life. That's what true revival is. That God would be our God and we His people. So, the question is, is that our desire? Is that your desire? Is this your prayer? Who knows, God may yet answer your prayers. He will speak peace as you keep remembering His mercies and asking for new life. As you wait for Him to act, remember that whatever happens, He speaks peace to His people. He does what is best for us. And remember also that we're prone to wander. So make a habit of asking God to keep us from temptation. Above all those things, seek Him. For He is life itself. Without Him, there is no life among the people of God. Without Him, we're no different than any other group of people. Whatever may come, you will not be disappointed if you seek the Lord. You seek Him.
He will revive us again.